0: Chris Davis is great at explaining things. Listening to him describe some of the myriad water monitoring projects he's worked on, one hears not only expertise based on years in the field, but also a knack for capturing the details and a genuine enthusiasm for the work. As an owner and member of Lower 48 Instruments, Chris works with customers around the country and around the world, configuring water quality and flow monitoring installations in often tricky environments. He approaches each job with the zeal of a natural problem solver, and whether it's dealing with the ever-changing regulatory landscape, antiquated municipal infrastructure, or the vicissitudes of Mother Nature, he's always up to the challenge. As a longtime customer and partner of ours, he's earned our admiration for his expertise in instrumentation and integration, and our appreciation for his willingness to share his technical knowledge and his take on a rapidly changing industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Aquapod, where guests share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager at InSitu.
1: And I'm Adam Hobson, InSitu's application development manager.
0: And with us today is Chris Davis. Chris has worked in the water monitoring industry for nearly two decades. As co-founder and member of Lower 48 Instruments, an equipment and service provider based in Dayton, Ohio, Chris is primarily focused on industrial and environmental water quality, flow measurement, and calibration of instrumentation and controls. He specializes in automatic water sampling, area velocity flow, primary flow device location and suitability, and water quality equipment calibration. And he's also been a longtime customer and a valued partner of ours. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: You bet. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, and uh, we'd like to start with just getting a little bit on your background. So maybe you can just tell us a bit about how you got into the industry and uh, found your focus.
2: Sure. Well, this is my second time around in the industry. Uh, the first time started when I was about, oh, 14 and a half, I think, Uh, And I swept a uh, instrumentation control firm's shop, and uh, after a bit, uh, they said that uh, I was too smart to sweep the floors and offered to teach me the business. And uh, so did that, uh, went through the process uh, eventually of owning that company, uh, sold it, uh, left the business entirely for about 20 years, and uh, then came back to it. And uh, what can I say? I I love it so much that uh, I'm in it for a second round, so... What brought you back? uh, um, To be quite frank, I didn't want to die in a cubicle. Uh, No offense to those (laughs) in cubicles, but um, I started life as a field guy, and uh, I feel like I kind of want to end it that way. So (laughs) I've got to the point where I've had a lot of injuries, so it's it's becoming a little more challenging to be in the field, but uh, I still like to play in it a lot. And uh, so whenever my guys have something interesting going on, I always find a way to get out there and uh, at least be a part of it,
1: so... So Chris, how big is the, how big is lower 48 right now?
2: There are seven members and, uh, I'm the primary owner. I own most of the company, but, uh, we're a membership based company. So small LLC.
1: Great. And and you guys work, you guys are working all over the U S correct?
2: Um, U S and globally.
1: And globally. Okay. Where, where, internationally, where have you gone?
2: Uh, we have been in Canada, uh, Chile, Afghanistan, Africa, uh, four or five countries there. Um, uh, let's see, Brazil, and there's another couple I've forgotten. But yeah, we, we do get around a little bit.
1: Now that's great! I'll but say, yeah, that's fantastic. So, Chris, tell me a little bit about some of the work that you're doing. What are some of the big biggest challenges you're finding with water monitoring in general? Kind of spe- specifically, you know, kind of where, where your your area of expertise, but also in general, what you're seeing just talking with customers and clients and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I think that one of the things about just dealing with the environment. um, So, what we work in varies pretty radically. Uh, So, we do everything from working in mining, which is mostly what takes us around the world. Mm. Um, And then, uh, in the environmental, uh, you need to have equipment that is durable and rugged and can stand up to whatever you're going to put it into. so making sure that all of that material is suitable for the different uh, places that you install it in, it's um, a huge challenge um, from a materials perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the reason that you're actually putting the stuff in, the changing regulatory environment is huge. Um, there's so many changes and trying to keep up on it and make sure that you can help the client to meet their obligations. Um, it's, a, it's a huge challenge.
1: So what kind of, like, what kind of regulatory changes are you seeing?
2: Um, well, one of the biggest things that's kind of popping up now recently is uh, PFAS monitoring. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of changing regulations around that uh, and measuring the uh, plastics in the water uh, mm-hmm. becoming a big topic. So
1: micro, um, microplastics. So trying to
2: find a way to... Microplastics, okay. exactly. So trying to uh, to help the client to create a system that can help them comply with their regulatory obligation. Um, so it's, it's a big challenge.
1: <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's a good one to kind of dive in on. Tell me a little more about how you how are you dealing with kind of PFAS monitoring and microplastics? What are some solutions that, that, that uh, you've been implementing?
2: So what we do a lot of times, um, a, you know, let's, let's deal with the U.S. because that's easiest. Um, so you're going to have an EPA um, permit. Uh, so each site, and maybe a customer has, you know, 15, 20 sites that they have to monitor within their campus each site will have its own um, permit mm-hmm. and that permit will state exactly how that has to be done. So let's say, for example, that one is based on rainfall and they're willing to actually capture the uh, stormwater runoff. Um, so maybe, you know, you have a 15 acre outfall and uh, they want to capture that water. So you have to, first of all, do a study. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we, we partner with some engineering firms to do the study uh, so you'll do a study, uh, calculate what the actual um, timing is in terms of when that first flush hits. Um, so then you have to create a model that's going to tell you, okay, if it starts raining at uh, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and you're getting a, a tenth of an inch uh, of rainfall per hour, um, how much time does it take for that first tenth of an inch to actually hit your outfall? Um, so then... Uh, you take a uh, flow meter and you actually can either measure the flow that's coming out directly so you can correlate that. Uh, and then you take a rain gauge and you use that data. So you bring all that data together and you're going to put it into a controller and you each program is custom made. And then those programs are going to tell you exactly when you need to go ahead and take a sample. So then we use a controller. Um, it's similar to, uh, to your guys's. Uh, FlowPros, mm-hmm. uh, those, uh, those boxes can be used for that purpose. So we'll take that and program it and tell it when it needs to take a sample. And then we have a uh, closed contact coming off of a box like that. And that will close a contact on the sampler. And the sample will go ahead and take a sample. It'll be then held. We then notify the customer uh, a lot of times via cellular data mm-hmm. that a uh, sample has been taken and they need to go grab a sample. Uh, then they'll send that off to their lab, get the uh, sample uh, analyzed, and uh, provide their findings.
1: So, really kind of a combination of a lot of different pieces of, of, of equipment, and you kind of understand a lot the of system. moving pieces. Yeah. And so, coordinating a lot again, you know, I think the, the modeling side of it obviously very critical to kind of at least come up with a starting point, but then getting into the, um, the instrumentation um, side mm-hmm. of it as well.
2: That's been a big challenge. And then and just keeping up uh, with the new administration here in the U.S., uh, keeping up with the, uh, the potential changes in legislation, mm-hmm. uh, trying to make sure that we're at least aware of what's going on. Um, a lot of times um, the customers don't know until they're handed uh, by an inspector at mm-hmm. notice uh, that, OK, you've got something new to comply with. So we try for those customers that are going to be involved because the industries that they serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we get update on notification that hey something's coming down the pathway, we try to let our customers know proactively. Hey, look, you know this is probably coming your way. Something to be aware of. Something to put into the budget. Um, so that way, when it does come down, doesn't become an emergency thing. It's a nice planned and orderly uh, installation. So.
1: Right. Now, certainly a big topic in the United States right now is kind of infrastructure and some, you know, pending legislation around that. How do you see that mm-hmm. potential infrastructure spending bill impacting water monitoring, particularly your, your areas? Uh,
2: we're, we're hoping for uh, continued growth. Um, it's, it's got a lot of potential, uh, especially with the way that the states are receiving some of the funding mm-hmm. off of that. Um, it, it could be a very interesting uh, next couple of years.
1: Kind of switching mm-hmm. gears just slightly, but on challenging environment, cha- kind of challenges you may be facing, I- I'm curious to hear your take on some like just other challenging environments you're operating in. You know, you mentioned mines and, um, you know, some of the, you know, sites like that, but you also talked, uh, and again, kind of knowing a little bit, you know, I know that having worked with you in the past, you know, you were dealing with a lot of stormwater uh, type things and like, mm-hmm. you know, runoff, except you mentioned like campuses, actually, university campuses is when also just other complexes like that, but also city storm, you know, city stormwater. What are some of the challenges you're facing around some projects like that?
2: Well, and it's really more about a customer's challenge than ours uh, on that side. And, um, you know, what you're finding, again, going back to permits uh, and the EPA regulation around things, um, a lot of customers are being forced um, either by regulation Or in the case of uh, municipal wastewaters, a a huge thing right now is that a lot of our wastewater infrastructure is aging, um, and a lot of the wastewater plants themselves are up against capacity. So you have a couple of choices when you deal with an up-against-capacity plant. You can either A, increase the size of the plant, uh, or B, you can reduce your influence. So when you start looking at the money that's involved in trying to increase the size of a plant, it can be huge. Now there's some federal money for it, but uh, there's still a good bit that ends up getting transferred onto the backs of the local community. Um, So oftentimes it becomes much more fiscally responsible uh, to go through the process of doing a study and finding out where the infrastructure is breaking down that's leading into groundwater to service water runoff, et cetera entering into the, uh, the municipal sewage treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been one of the ways that, uh, our clients, it's a challenge for them. And, uh, the solution is that you do monitoring throughout the city and find out which areas are the worst, uh, for the infiltration. And, uh, then you work on ways to solve that either by relining, by installing new pipe, uh, by sealing manholes, something as simple as that, uh, sometimes can add to a huge savings in terms of, uh, influent during the storm. Um, so that's, that's a challenge we see a lot. Um, we also see challenges with the customers in terms of, um, basically new regulation that comes out with respect to stormwater. Um, some are you know required now to actually monitor how much discharge they're making into streams. So even if it's in theory, clean water, uh, they still need to monitor, uh, the type of, uh, of water that's going into the streams. And if that water meets the same water qualities Mm -hmm. that the stream is actually rated for. So uh, you you mentioned one of the university projects we worked on together Mm -hmm. and uh, that was the case there. Um, You know, the stream that they're discharging into um, they need to make sure that the water that they're discharging into that stream is of the same or equal quality or better than what the stream is. So if they have a problem in one area, they need to remediate it and treat that water before Mm -hmm. it actually hits the stream.
1: Now, Chris, remind me, what what parameters were they monitoring for that?
2: It depends on the site, um, kind of what gets monitored. Again, each site has its own specific discharge permit. So on some sites, you may be looking for turbidity. um, And in the case of a a, uh, storm drain uh, that combines the... uh, Oh, I was trying to say, um, actually like curbs, uh, so your regular traditional storm sewers. So when it combines that and say an area that has historically a lot of turbidity on it, you may want to watch that, you know, turbidity level. And maybe the EPA has said, look, you know, this particular site, we've inspected it before. We've seen the fact that there's problems here. You got to measure turbidity in addition to your actual flow, and in addition to your Uh, pH and and things of that nature. Right. Other sites, it may just be a matter of measuring the flow that's coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, In some sites, um, they actually want to monitor the temperature because they want to make sure that the temperature of the water that's being discharged into the stream is not too high or not too low above the uh, prevailing temperatures in the stream.
1: Now you've got a. I think we you got an interesting project that you've been working on. It was a, uh, I believe it was a limestone mine that was uh, discharging water, and and there was a, a water quality Correct. challenge there. Um, I'm curious what, what was quite what was a bit going, of
2: water quality there.
1: Yeah. So what, what's what, what's the, what's what's uh, some of the background on that and the and the driving factors towards it?
2: So in subterranean mines, um, at least within the U.S. Um, A lot of times what happens when you interrupt, um, the levels of rock, uh, the, you know, going through the earth, you interrupt the natural flow of water. Um, so what can happen, uh, in a subterranean mine is that you're going to end up getting into the water supply, that water supply goes down to the very bottom of the mine, and then they have to pump it out or to continue their mining operations, but they have to return that water back to the surface. Um, so when they do, in this, in this specific case, they need to monitor not only the water quality, so the pH needs to be right, the turbidity needs to be right, uh, but they also have to monitor the temperature, all, all of those parameters, as well as the amount of water that's being discharged. So you actually have to measure the amount of flow that you're returning back into the surrounding streams um, because what they want to make sure is that you don't end up having a situation where you are not returning enough water back to the surface that would have naturally been there. So the way that you do that is that you're going to monitor stream depth across several different locations. And they have some historical records as to what that stream depth was like prior to the monitoring. You also have surface water temperature measurement. So you're gonna measure the water that's in that stream. Then on the actual mine side, what we do is we monitor all those water quality parameters And make sure that the water that is being returned to those streams actually matches that again with the stream discharge. So you don't want to have it, uh, you know, too muddy. Uh, You don't want to have it too warm, too cold. Uh, certainly got to make sure that your pH is right. So when you're dealing with limestone, uh, you need to make sure that pH gets balanced so that the service water is identical to that which it was, you know, already naturally existing. Mm -hmm. And the reason you do that is that you want to prevent changing the aquatic life that's present in that stream. And uh, in the case of the, uh, the big large mining project we just completed, you know, their issue is that they have uh, a few different rare species of trout, uh, as well as it's a huge income stream for the state uh, because they're well-known for, uh, for their trout waters. So they bring in anglers from all over the world to fish their waters every year. You want to make sure you have a good supply and you don't have kill-off.
1: No, it certainly makes sense. And that's a great that the, kind of the community yeah. is driving that as well. You know, there's, there's, there's
0: many, many Absolutely.
2: reasons. Community, the state and from the federal level too, you know, they, they want to make sure those water land, those waters are protected.
0: Absolutely. So Chris, do you have a go-to solution for that sort of monitoring? A lot of
2: it is customer driven uh-huh. um, it's a, and not, not the customer themselves so much more as the actual site application itself. So it depends. Um, in a situation like the mine, uh, we used a ton of c 2s products. In fact, just about everything was in C2, uh, with the exception of the few flow monitors that we used that were magnetic meters. Um, everything was uh, in situ. 2 So we used the uh, Flow Pro XCI boxes. Uh, we used the uh, AT500s uh, to measure the water quality and temperature. And then we used actually some AT500s to measure the uh, depth in the uh, streamways. In a couple of places as well. So,
0: yeah, you, I think, have been using um, our MACE products since before Insitu purchased the company some years ago. Uh, correct. It's something.
2: Correct. Yeah, we've been using uh, we've been using MACE for a very long time.
0: <laughs> and I think so, we even call on good, you to help product. other customers set it up, if I'm not mistaken. Right?
2: Yeah, quite quite often. Actually, mm. I've I've kind of kind of a a weird situation in the fact that, uh, you know, we're your customer, but we're also kind of a a partner more so than anything because we end up uh, answering tech support stuff and really weird application stuff that uh, nobody else has done. So.
0: I'm just curious why it's a a line that you choose to use over and over through the years.
2: Um, Quite frankly, it is the ability to expand that box. I can set that box up. Um, to actually initiate a signal to go ahead and do other things. So it's not just monitoring, it's monitoring plus control. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of good flow meters out there. There's a lot of good analytical stuff out there, but combining that flow, um, that water quality, and then be able to close contacts to further retransmit four to 20 million signals, things of that nature to be able to do that all inside one box, uh, it's huge and to provide a graphical display. When I set something in front of a client, if they can walk up to the box and actually be able to use the up and down arrows and actually see what their totals are, to see what their current levels are, that's huge as mm-hmm. opposed to having to remote into it. Mm-hmm. Because there may be a situation in which you want to have that data right there in front of you as well as being able to get it remotely. I'll give you an example of the uh, of the uh, customer who's the university. Um, so they have research um, you know, assistance. Well, those research assistants may grab that data remotely, but a lot of times they're doing field st- surveys. So they're actually taking students out in the field and showing them, okay, you know, here's the uh, the water quality at this particular site, being able to go up and down and actually view that water quality data real time is very helpful in field instruction. Um, same thing if you have an operator who's just doing his rounds and checking things out, um, you may not necessarily be in front of a desk, you may go from site to site to site, Physically checking the uh, the sensors, uh, doing maintenance. It's a really handy tool to be able to have that you know simple up and down interface on the LCD display to see whether or not oh is this site functioning oh yeah it's functioning okay well now let's just check it and make sure there's nothing else you know gumming it up etc or no it's not functioning okay well we really need to you know start looking into the site.
0: Yeah,
1: Chris, are you seeing? Kind of, you know, you've been doing this a long time. What kind of changes are you seeing in the industry? And I was, it was kind of spurred this by kind of thinking of like telemetry and like data management, but what other changes, including those, but that you may be seeing in the industry that are kind of shaping where things are going now?
2: Um, Yeah, there's a lot of changes going on in the industry. Um, So data management is huge. So having Bluetooth connectivity, that's become a huge thing in terms of product. Um, so that's, that's kind of new <laughs> because obviously Bluetooth is new, but, uh, we're seeing that more and more as well. And customers are wanting it. They're wanting to be able to go up to a device. And that's kind of one of the complaints that we've heard actually is that more devices aren't Bluetooth connected.
1: Okay. So kind of more, it sounds like that's a, uh, like going almost from a, that, that old school, but not, not completely going to a hundred percent remote. Uh, or, or having the, that that interim ability, as you're saying, kind of that being able to walk up to a site and still be able to get your get your data a little more effectively.
2: Exactly, uh, and that's what I'm saying about the uh, you know the LCD. Right. Not so much that it's an LCD. No one get, well, no one really gives a crap. Everybody has cell phones now. There's very, very, very few people out there who don't. So you know we all have cell phones. Um, making that jump from the old LCD push button to being able to connect to Bluetooth and grab the same data it's not really so much about how you're getting it. It's about the fact that you can get it locally and without dragging a laptop out. Right. Because quite frankly, dragging a laptop out and plugging it in, it's kind of a drag. Um, and then you introduce one more device into the world. Right. Versus if you make it Bluetooth or if you have an LCD display, you just walk up to the device, get your data and move on.
1: You know? Right, right. Now, how are you seeing that there's more of a trend towards kind of more data coming in, you know, just more frequent measurements and, and you know, kind of that larger data sets that you're, you're managing?
2: Uh, absolutely. Um, the used to be you could put a, uh, a device out in the field, have it take a measurement once a day and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a lot of cases, that's, that's still the case but you're also seeing sites now where they're wanting to have it minute by minute. And uh, that's really becoming quite a challenge in terms of the cellular data cost and acquiring that data. Um, We have a a chemical site uh, in Kentucky whereby they actually need to have it literally every minute. Mm. And uh, they still want to get it cellularly because they don't have an on-site dedicated SCADA system. So... Uh, it's become a huge challenge because obviously when you're scanning and getting their information every minute, that becomes very expensive. So uh, yeah, it's there are more and more clients that are needing that type of thing and they're wanting to do away with the idea of traditional SCADA.
1: Right, right. Now that makes sense. Are you seeing any kind of trend beyond cellular to more like satellite or even other other systems, maybe just even just local radios or anything like that?
2: Oh, local radios have been around for years. Um, They were around when I was in this business the first time back Mm -hmm. in the 80s. Um, And that's not going to change. Uh, But what is changing, what's interesting is seeing the idea of uh, what I'll call web connected. So you've got maybe one central device that grabs data from 40, 50, 60 devices in the field. Those field devices are all radio equipped, Mm -hmm. and then you bring it into one central hub, and then that central hub then retransmits that data one time from all of those, we'll refer to it as the slaves. Right. So we're seeing that that's starting to come into play a little bit more than what it even has before. Um, that's one of those circumstances where we're relying on data loggers and things like that to compile the data.
1: Now, what about with, with satellite? Anything similar with that or, or, or not, not quite yet in the industry that you're, you're, you're dealing with mostly?
2: Um, some, there are a few clients that, uh, we actually have satellite, uh, um, modems that uh, upload the data to the satellites and then retransmit. Those are rare. Um, there is a few customers that do that, but those are rare mainly because of the cost. Right. They they tend to try to avoid that unless they have to.
1: Right. And is that, is that you're seeing it more internationally potentially?
2: Yes, Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. the very remote sites. Um, those in mining and in the mountains, uh, those are the ones that we're placing satellites in.
1: That's all good. Um, so, Chris, what do, what do you think? What, what's what's going to be next for the industry, you think?
2: The big trend that I see is uh, the IoT of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, placing a lot of low-cost sensors and building a mesh from those, um, that, I think, is kind of the next thing. Um, so, you know, you're still going to have a place in the world, uh, for the, um, well, very robust single place sensors. Uh, but I think you're going to start seeing a lot of, uh, cheap low cost sensors, uh, being deployed in mass, uh, to be able to gather data, especially as some people are starting to become really interested in microtrends, uh, within a region, I think you're going to start to see a lot more of that.
1: That would make sense. Absolutely. Well, I think you know, you can, as we always say, more data is better,
0: right? Is there anything that you would really like to see uh, if you had a chance to sit down with an R and D team? <laughs> anything on your wish list? That when you're out in the field, you think, boy, it'd oh, be yeah. nice to have blank.
2: <laughs> my yeah, my my wish list would definitely be having low cost radio mesh networks. Um, they're they're getting there. They're getting cheaper and cheaper. But uh, being able to create a uh, low cost radio mesh, um, so you know there are challenges with using radio uh, because you have interference and things like that. But the upside to it is the power you know conservation and use. Uh, you can turn those radios on and off and blast a bunch of data, uh, collect a bunch of data, and then retransmit that bunch of data. And you can do it in places that you wouldn't be able to traditionally use. Um, monitoring. So, you know, if you can get a uh, you know one mile line of sight, for example, uh, you can go ahead and have a central uh, you know mast and be able to collect data off of a huge, huge area, and you can do it you know for relatively cheap. So, I would love to see more in that in that range. Yep. And standardizing to an SDI twelve. <laughs> 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 Everything went SDI twelve that would make me really happy. Yes. So it's, it's easy to teach people to use. Um, it's easy to maintain. It's, it's a great, it's a great language.
1: Oh, that's, that's very true. Very, very true. I think, I think a lot of people feel that way in terms of uh, wh- yeah, what, what, what sensors do you think are missing?
2: That's a good question. One I have, really haven't thought about to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think and, and the reason that I haven't is that we haven't come up against anything yet that we can't monitor. Um, I mean, obviously you're starting to see these new things, like I said, the PFAS and um, getting oils, um, yeah, sensors to actually measure oil would be kind of crazy good. Uh, I don't know how in the heck you come up with that, but uh, sensors to measure the plastics, the mm-hmm. microplastics in water, that would be crazy wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would avoid the idea of taking samples and having them lab analyzed. Right. Um, so just, you know, more analytical things in the field, I think would be uh, interesting. I could change the face of how things are done right now. Um, personally, I would hate that, um, because that would completely strip my uh, sampling
1: distribution network. <laughs> <to people up.
2: laughs> but, uh, on the other hand, it would provide other opportunities. So, you know,
1: right. Right. Well, again, if if you, you know, maybe doing the increased sensors with the, uh, increased, um, low cost, uh, you know, radio mesh networks, then you, then you start Absolutely. getting some value there. um, Absolutely. No, that's great. So, Chris, you've been doing this again. You're doing it a long time. As I said before, you know, you, you said you said you came back to this industry. What's what's driving yeah. you in this industry? What, what what makes it fun for you?
2: Uh, it may it's all about the solving problems. Yeah. So, you know, customers are going to have issues that they have to deal with, and you know, my typical customer, uh, there are you're talking about a plant manager, or they are a maintenance manager, or um, they are a, 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 research, um, you know, uh, they come from a lot of different backgrounds, but one thing that they have in common is mm, most of them are not instrumentation professionals. They right. don't know instrumentation. They don't know how to integrate. Um, so that's the thing that kind of excites me is that they say, Hey, look, we've been told that we have to monitor this now. We don't know how to do it. Can you help us? And, uh, being able to solve their problem for them. Um, that is really exciting uh, because I walk away with a happy customer, they're thrilled that they're able to get what they needed to get, they get it on time, they get it on budget, and they get support. Um, we w- the way that I founded this company is that we don't stop talking to people after they buy the product. Um, you know, we continue to support our customers year after year. We love, and I love, hearing back from the customer. Um, I've Several of them, I'll, I'll ask them, "Hey, you know, how is your data project going? You know, uh, wh- what kind of learning have you had? Because I love to hear what they've gotten from it. Uh, because that's what makes me happy. Is like I said, just solving the problem for them. So, and that'll be it as long as I'm
1: in this field. Now so, now yeah. that's great stuff.
0: I'm sure there's a big education piece to it. You know, where to point them at one way, maybe discourage them from wanting to go another way because you have that knowledge base
2: yeah, it really is. And um, you know the the fun thing for me, um, and I try to find people like this to work with me and to work with our team. Um, I try to find someone who has that combination of hands-on practicality with the ability to understand the larger picture that's at play and understand, for example, how to put that data together and capture what is needed. So bringing in the physicality of knowing when a site is a good site and knowing when a site is a bad site and being able to tell the customer, look, I know you need to monitor this, but this is a very poor choice. The data that you're gonna get off of this site physically is bad. We need to relocate this or we need to do something different. So you know, having that combination of things, that's, that brings me a lot of joy too. Being able to tell the customer, look, you know, let, let's not do it here. Let's, let's try to find another site.
0: And there's so many applications and environments that you work in. Are there any that you would like to move into that you're not currently involved with? Uh,
2: Not really. Um, I'm hoping we've had lots of conversations about where we're going to take the direction of the company. Again, I still own most of it, but, um, you know, everybody gets their say and, uh, we're pretty much on the same board that we want to do more environmental. Um, Municipal is the foundation of the business and we're not going to ever turn away from that. Um, But I've been doing municipal (laughs) literally since the 1980s. (laughs) So I did take a huge break in it, but I've been doing municipal since the eighties. So I've got a pretty good handle on what municipalities need. Um, They do need to have some changes of course, to meet new regulations and things like that, but it's pretty much the same thing. Um, but we've really started to get a lot of—it's uh, a lot of fun—to take on the environmental stuff because the environment that you're putting the stuff in is so radically different. Um, you know, I can go from the desert um, to literally <laughs> pushing the limits—the lower limits and the upper limits—of the equipment mm-hmm. and its installation sites. That's a lot of fun. You know, mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how we're going to outsmart Mother Nature and grab this data for the client—that's pretty fun. <laughs> so
0: that's a good. Well, I won't say adversary. A good, right. a good challenge.
2: Oh, it's a great adversary. <laughs> it, it, Mother Nature is the best adversary. Uh, she will test you and push you in ways that you have no idea.
1: Man you know. versus nature right <laughs>
2: <laughs> well and maybe Pretty much that, well, uh, trying, uh, trying to work with nature you right, know right. it's not really versus it's 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 just trying to work with it you know it, and you know weather patterns are changing and you know you're you're seeing you know these huge flash floods in areas that you hadn't seen it before and trying to find sensors that you can harden to be able to still take a measurement at that site but yet deal with you know, velocities coming through and, and scouring and dropping rocks through your, your sensors and things like that. So that's, um, you know,
1: that's a, that's a good fun challenge. Absolutely. Chris, to that end, are you seeing more monitoring opportunities related to, I guess, extreme events and potentially even kind of climate adaptation or that type of thing?
2: Yeah, a, a lot of the uh, larger university projects we're working with, um, they're focused on that. Uh, So it's primarily in research. You don't really deal with that as much um, on the UNI side in terms of like the INI monitoring, things like that. Although it's related, uh, it's not directly correlated to that. Um, But certainly within the the universities, it's a huge topic of research and something that they're trying to kind of get in front of. Um, So a lot of those deployments that we've made, uh, they've directly been impacted by that.
1: That makes sense makes sense. I think we're seeing a lot of that. And as you mm-hmm. mentioned, there's, I think there's going to be more funding available for that coming up here in the near future.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think it's something that, uh, you know, as a society we would be well, yeah. <laughs> we'd be well advised to pay attention to <laughs> because, you know, quite frankly when you look at uh, you know the infrastructure that we have in place, it's not designed for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the engineering that we did 100 years ago um, it's changed a little bit. And uh, you've got to have your infrastructure prepared and ready for that, or you're going to pay a lot of money to fix
1: it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to have the tools in order to, to measure it, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll give you a great example. Um, I own a farm and the place that I live, um, we've had development start to crop up over the last 20 years surrounding the farm. And um, I've been monitoring a, a creek, on my farm for years. Okay. And uh, when I built the new home on the property, I moved it further back off of the roadway. And uh, the engineer who came out to uh, do the uh, assessments told me that, you know, I needed to have a six foot culvert. Um, I had the fortune of working side by side with my grandfather for many years. Uh, He was a farmer Hmm. and we chatted about it and he said, no. He goes, you know what, he goes, I would, triple that if I were you he said just knowing that you know building is going to be coming this way you're going to see a lot higher runoffs in the future he goes just go ahead and save yourself trouble so I did I put a huge culvert in wow when I first put the culvert in um, 20 years ago on average I had about an inch worth of uh, depth going through that culvert Um, now as of last year I've got about 12 inches worth of depth
0: oh my gosh
2: and uh, given that yeah it's it's a huge increase. And, you know, we're talking about averages, not spikes, right? The spikes now, um, I'm filling that culvert over half full. If I'd put in what the engineer had told me to, it would have been overflowing and I would have been washed out from my, uh, my uh, road surface.
0: I mean, that's that's
2: so um, is it directly due to runoff? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, as, Different places, whether it be a university, whether it be a city, et cetera, start paying more attention to these runoff events from rain, uh, and paying attention to the hardscapes that get put in versus permeable solutions. Uh, I think that's something that could really benefit everybody downstream. I think that if we start to think about these things, you know, thinking about the people downstream of us, I think that's good for everybody, uh, and it's it's good for the oceans. It's, it's all part of the you know connected uh, connected environment that we live in. So.
0: Well, Chris, it has been wonderful talking with you. But before we let you go, especially given your experience, we have to ask for someone who's just coming into this industry, what advice do you have for them?
2: Um, (laughs) Probably my best piece of advice for someone new coming into business is read. Uh, Mm. Read a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when your eight hour shift or your 10 hour shift uh, ends with your employer, don't let it stop there. Um, take the time to educate yourself. Um, I actually pay my guys extra to take on different projects and to read up more about uh, you know areas of interest that they have. Um, it's that important to me. But I would encourage anyone, regardless of whether or not your boss pays you to do it or not, uh, take the time to continue to educate yourself. It doesn't end the moment you get out of the university. That's just the beginning. Um, to me, it's so important that as our career goes on and on, that we learn more and more. It, it, you know, when I took a 20-year break, the world changed when I came back. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I left, you know, electronic meters were there. Um, so, you know, you had the mag meters, you had all that sort of stuff. Uh, ultrasonics were around, you know, that was all there, but it wasn't yet prevalent. Um, you were just really starting to see that uh, become the de facto. Um, you know, when I came into the business, we were still using, you know, Mercury switches and, you know, mechanical switch gear and, you know, mm-hmm. these things were, that was the norm. So you take a 20-year break and come back to it, and all of a sudden all these languages that have been developed back in the 70s and the 80s, now there are they're not just a, oh yeah, look at this neat new technology. This is accepted now, right? So, you know, when someone comes out of school, um, they get started into what's the here and now, but what's coming 15, 20 years down the road when you're in mid-career? Uh, if you don't keep up on it and you don't educate yourself, I think that you really fall behind. So you do yourself a disservice, you do your employer a disservice, and you do your community a disservice. So that's that's my best piece of
0: advice. Excellent guidance. Well, this has been terrific. Thanks so much for, you know, taking a little time out of your extremely busy schedule. Uh, to, You're quite welcome. To Thank you guys for being
2: such a great partner of ours. And, you know, we really appreciate what you do and the commitment you've made to uh, to furthering uh, <laughs> excellence in monitoring. I mean, the, the whole defensible data thing, it's, it's, just so important. I think if I could get more customers to understand how important it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both of our businesses would be uh, fifteen times as large
1: as they are. So. <laughs> Very true, well, Chris. We really look forward to continue working with you, and uh, so I know I know we will be in touch with you soon.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much. Absolutely.
1: Thanks again, guys. All right. All right. Have a great day.
0: This is Aquapod, brought to you by InSitu. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on our website, insitu.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Adam Hobson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field, and until then, take care out there.